This is Kevin Finneran. I will be the moderator for the online symposium on visual culture and evolution that is being organized by the cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences and will take place April 5th to 14th, 2010. To help introduce some of the topics that will be discussed during the symposium, I've traveled to Harvard University to talk with Edward O. Wilson, the renowned entomologist, biodiversity pioneer, environmental advocate, and Pulitzer Prize winning author. In addition to his groundbreaking scientific research, Wilson has been an active and perceptive participant in public discussions of the relationship between science and the arts and humanities. In his 1998 book, Consilience, The Unity of Knowledge, he discusses the potential to develop a unified field of knowledge that combines science, the humanities, and the arts. Wilson is no longer teaching, but is pursuing a number of scientific and popular book projects. He recently added to his long list of stunning accomplishments with the publication of his first novel, The Ant Hill. In this interview, Wilson discusses what drew him to science, how the theory of evolution revolutionized the study of biology and much else in human culture, and what he sees as the still unfulfilled potential of the visual arts to encompass and build on evolutionary science. There is a point um, in, in Consilience when you talk about reading Ernst Mayer's book. Um, yeah. And it was just so suggestive to me about what Darwin meant to you. So maybe we should s start there. I mean, why, uh, what it, when you came across the concept of evolution and thought about what it meant, um, yeah. how did that occur to you and how has it affected your thinking over, over the years? Yeah. I would say that um, I began as a naturalist as a child. I was nine years old when enraptured by National Geographic articles on beautiful beetles of the tropics, on ants, the one published in 1934, and uh, books, and then movies that I got to see in my uh, early teens about explorations in jungles and the hunting of big animals and so on, uh, turned me into a naturalist, and I did decided as early as my at the age of 10 I was going to be an entomologist because I confound the endless uh, excitement in exploring nature, and I could I found that I could do this uh, as a child. I found I could do it without being on an expedition to Africa. That if I took the little things, the insects and the other creepy crawlies, and 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 went hunting for them, mm -hmm. including butterflies. Butterflies were a mainstay of my uh, early life as a, as a naturalist, um, netting them, find, pinning them, finding out what they were, hunting rarities and so on. If I did that, then I could get all of the excitement of going to a real jungle somewhere. And I decided that eventually I would go to a real jungle somewhere, as I did when I reached my 20s and could afford it. But I realize uh, at an early age, as does any naturalist or as does any person who has more than a superficial knowledge of natural history or wish to require it, uh, that there is a virtual infinitude of form and beauty and a range of endless, new sur of endless surprises that await anyone who gets into natural history and at any level above with any kind of plant or animal 
And this impelled me uh, through my early teens in Alabama, growing up in Alabama. I decided that in order to be an entomologist so I could do this the rest of my life, I said, surely I can find a living somewhere doing this. Um, I decided that I would have to uh, choose a particular group in which to become an expert. And I didn't know anything about how to prepare for a career, but by my uh, age of 15 or 16, I was now focusing on a group I had chosen, which were ants, and been collecting them, reading everything I could find on them. Um, and uh, I, at this point, I remember my images, my excitement uh, very well. It was the same excitement that impelled uh, the great explorers of the world as uh, when uh, in the age of exploration, the, the, the main age of exploration, of course, for the Western Europe was uh, the 16th century. So uh, when they found new islands and continents and strange animals and plants, it was at a very gross level. But nonetheless, it was primal in, in, in how it excited them and the world to find that the planet was there to explore and that it would bring great benefit of all kinds. Of course, initially, mainly it was territory and, and money and economic growth that counted, but nonetheless, the excitement was there. I described that sensation of coming into a new world uh, and then related to coming into a new world on a more, uh, uh, with the level of my, a more minute examination uh, uh, in my book, uh, Diversity of Life. And you know, I'd like to read a paragraph to you now, uh, because now I'm talking about pre-Darwinian mm -hmm. excitement over mm -hmm. natural history and the exploration of the world, mm -hmm. which what impels us. Discovery that it came about by autonomous process creates a very different motivation and perception of how the world works. So, mm -hmm. and, uh, and this will certainly be related to the visual arts. Oh, yes. For example, I had uh, a wonderful Sarah Landry, wonderful artist, uh, who did the figures for me for um, sociobiology, uh, do uh, a series of, uh, of works just for this. Well, it's interesting, too, as you describe it, that when what got you into entomology and, and, and natu you know, natural science was seeing the representation of it, was seeing the National Geographic photos and so on, rather than first seeing it in the woods and then and it, discovering it. You it saw it first in uh, pictures and that led you outside and, and that's right. into doing it. That's right. I started going out because I wanted to see these things. Mm -hmm. And I grant you, it was mainly, we're talking about a child, but mm -hmm. it persists right mm -hmm. into my teens. It was largely visual. Mm -hmm. It was a visual representation. And it was then, because I, was, I spent a year in Washington, it was awe over uh, the Smithsonian and the perception by a child that people did this for a living. Because <laughs> I might grow up and be one of these gods who will dwell on the second floor of the Museum of Natural History. <laughs> um, this is the 
culmination storm on over the Amazon, this opening chapter, and that describes uh, the feelings I have sitting in a, a knoll in the middle of undisturbed rainforest and watching a, a major storm, the kind that happens in the Amazon in the late afternoon and early evening. That's at night. It's a very dark night. And as I said, uh, the greatest violence in, and there's drama in all of this, this is what's important, the greatest mm -hmm. violence of the train of the tropical rainforest starts with a flicker of light on the horizon. And that's the coming storm. And I describe it how it comes. And what happened, uh, and I'll just read to you um, uh, a paragraph that describes the lightning. And it describes it in scientific terms, but in the context of the emotions, the feelings of what's happening in this marvelous headquarters of biodiversity. The storm grew until sheet lightning spread across the western sky. The thunderhead reared up like a top-heavy monster in slow motion, tilted forward, blotting out the stars. The forest erupted in a simulation of violent life. Lightning bolts struck to the front and then closer to the right and left. I don't know what I was doing sitting out on an exposed, well, never mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and here, 10,000 volts dropping along an ionizing path at 800 kilometers an hour, kicking a countersurge skyward 10 times faster, back and forth in a split second, the hole perceived as a single flash and crack of sound, the wind freshened and rain came stalking through the forest. Now that's science. But if scientists can visually or verbally be put into a context that stirs, you know, mm -hmm. our emotions, our soul, then science and humanities will come together. This will be one way they will come together. In the midst of chaos, something to the side caught my attention. The lightning bolts were acting like strobe flashes to illuminate the wall of the rainforest. At intervals, I garried, I glimpsed the storage structure. You were into science again. Top canopy 30 meters off the ground. Middle trees spread raggedly below that, and a lower most scattering of shrubs and small trees. The forest was framed for a few moments in this theatrical setting. The image turned surreal projected into the unbounded wildness of the human imagination, thrown back in time 10,000 years. Somewhere close I knew, spear-nosed bats flew through the tree crowns in search of fruit. Palm vipers coiled in ambush in the roots of orchids. Jaguars walked the river's edge. Around them, 800 species of trees stood, more than are native to all of North America, and a thousand species of butterflies, 6% of the entire world fauna waited for the dawn. Now that's more science, <laughs> but again, I'm, I'm trying, I'm creating an image. I'm creating a pre-Darwinian image here. Hmm. I'm creating a poetic image, and I'm trying to be faithful to the dictum that the ideal scientist thinks like a poet, works like a bookkeeper, and occasionally tries to write, you know, like like a journalist or a poet. And now, uh, now I'm going to tell you the, 
the soul of it. You know, the science, why we go, and what we hope to find in science. And I don't care whether you're talking about the orchids of an un, un, unexplored patch of rainforest, or whether you're talking about molecules in a eukaryotic nuclear mem membrane, uh, the, uh, the molecules. Um, it's the same. They have the same excitement. About the orchids of that place, we knew very little. About flies and beetles, almost nothing. Fungi, nothing. Most kinds of organisms, nothing. 5,000 kinds of bacteria might be found in a pinch of soil, and about them we knew absolutely nothing. This was wilderness in the 16th century sense, as it might have formed in the minds of the Portuguese explorers. Its interior still largely explored and filled with strange myth-engendering plants and animals. From such a place, the pious naturalist would send long, respectful letters to royal patrons about the wonders of the New World as testament to the glory of God, and I thought there is still time to see this land in such a manner. The unsolved mysteries of the rainforest are formless and seductive. That's another aspect of being on the edge of science. Exploring it. It's there, it's formless and seductive. They are like unnamed islands hidden in the blank spaces of old maps, like dark shapes glimpsed ascending the far wall of a reef into the abyss. They dry, draw us forward and stir strange apprehensions. The unknown and prodigious are drugs to the scientific imagination, stirring insatiable hunger with a single taste. In our hearts we hope we will never discover everything. We pray there will always be a world like this one at whose edge I sat in darkness. The rainforest and its richness is one of the last repositories on earth of that timeless dream. And that's what we do as scientists. Now, that is what impelled me, and I know from the flood of letters that I got after I published my memoir, Naturalist, impel countless other scientists uh, from people like Murray Gell-Mann, for example, a physics yeah. who went with his, spent long periods of time with his brother uh, in the uh, New Jersey marshes watching mm. birds to other naturalists and so on. They said, mm. that's how I started as a kid. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> so when I arrived at the University of Alabama as a wide-eyed freshman in 19, uh, 1946, I was 17, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do whatever it took going through the university to be able to be an entomologist and naturalist and live this sort of life. And then I discovered through reading Ernst Meyer's Systematics and the Origin of Species, evolution. And I said to myself when I read this, everything, everything changed. Uh, I saw, um, what I had thought of as an unlimited world, un, unexplored and so on, I saw it with a new dimension. I saw it as a result of a history. And I saw it as something that that history could be grasped, that it was a process. And I could say to myself, my God, but I wasn't saying my God anymore because I immediately lost my Southern Baptist faith. <laughs> this is so much better than the Bible. That, um, I, I saw uh, that uh, what I so loved and wanted to do was science. 
that really there was a theory, that there was an explanation, and everything started falling in place. So what was it that Darwin had bequeathed to the world? Darwin had bequeathed um, the idea that the tangled bank that drew us in uh, originally, that uh, fed on archetypes that are programmed in the brain, uh, the desire to discover new lands, to explore, to understand, to inhabit. That we inhabit, to inhabit the tangled bank, the scientist mm -hmm. anyway, uh, and not just change it or you know take it over entirely for human needs, but we want to inhabit the unknown world that's still out there. Uh, that um, all of that could make sense as a um, as a process that was understandable and could be studied. Uh, and and, and um, spoken of in terms of general laws. So that's what Darwin gave. But he gave so much else that was uh, absolutely essential. That's why Jim Watson and I recent, not too recent, a year or two ago were on Charlie Rose mm -hmm. talking about this, the Darwin era, and we both agree Darwin is the most important man who ever lived. We were something that had risen out this biosphere, the process of evolution, that we had achieved the status of the mind of life on this planet. We are the mind. It finally created a mind. And that we, had, uh, we have complete responsibility for our own lives, our future, and control of it. And it didn't matter that we were just a little speck, maybe out of billions in the universe, uh, we uh, are here, and this is how we got here. And Darwin then brought to, uh, made it clear that this isn't the way it's been, static, for whatever period of time it was, you know, 4,000 years ago, or 4,000 BC, rather, uh, or even a million years, but it was constantly changing, and so if you bring in the idea of geologic time, which Darwin had gotten from Lyell, and seen and practiced himself through uh, the, uh, the visible uh, activities of reconstruction in his theory of, of the origin of atolls through volcanoes that come from the sea and subside, leaving a, an atoll. And then saw the what Lyell had said what must be occurring uh, that has created the face of the earth, like the earthquake at Concepcion. You know, Darwin was there. Huh. The great earthquake of Concepcion, Chile, mm -hmm. in 1835. He was there. He was yes. close by. He was able to go visit Concepcion within days. And the artist with him drew the wreckage of the old cathedral and so on. Uh, he knew that all of this took immense periods of time, but that it was a constantly changing process. Darwin gave me, and has given countless young and older naturalists, a perception of the world uh, that is dynamic, but uh, nonetheless stable enough as far as the human existence is concerned to uh, be studied in detail that it was virtually endless, 
Um, we know far more about that now than Darwin did. We now realize that there could be, when you put in microorganisms, a hundred million species, that even without the microorganisms, we could have discovered up to this time only 10% of the species of organisms on Earth. Uh, that uh, this was stable enough to be endless, that the tangle banked had depths and meaning. Darwin explained, or, and all the people that followed him explained, uh, depths that exceed anything the human imagination has ever been able to create. And that's true right up to the present time in our current techno-scientific arrogance. That that creation that we're dealing with, the living world, is deeper and more complex and more um, fragile, too, than anything uh, we have ever conceived yet, then. And it's something I've been involved with in sociobiology, which was controversial, which never should have been controversial. Uh, anyway, it's now widely accepted. Mm. Was uh, And now it's a growing awareness that the human brain itself is programmed to substantial degree as a consequence of that same process, natural selection, and that um, that process of natural selection that created us as a human species did, uh, came about, a large part of it, while we were a species immersed in the Tangle Bank, immersed in the biosphere, and we were part of it, and we were created by it, and that we leave it at our peril. And that a lot of what we love and a lot of what we celebrate in the arts, uh, visual arts, mm -hmm. uh, but then all the other arts, mm -hmm. uh, the the, uh, the poetry, the, uh, the descriptive. Well, how, um, how do you think about the different ways a scientist and an artist, you know, expresses, comes to terms with, uses the the ideas that come out of evolution? I mean, I, th I think we're really at the dawn of bringing art, visual arts, and the other arts together close to science so that the two can invigorate one another. I think we have a long way to go. Uh, obviously, the impact of the living world, the impact of the living world has an effect on imagery that artists, visual artists, try to convey. And they have not done a very good job of it. That's, let's be frank about that. Because most visual artists have no conception of uh, the full extent of the complexity of the living world, or nor do they have any way of, have they had any way of capturing the Darwinian vision of the dynamism, or of the place of humanity in it. Mm -hmm. So I feel that uh, that's a huge uh, terrain for them to enter. But it has to be done with a great deal more familiarity with what science is discovering, what the world really looks like. Um, and this rendering of what the world really is by science, uh, they should come to appreciate, is uh, uh, travels across orders of magnitude of time as an unfolding process, which is extremely difficult you know, to conceptualize Mm -hmm. um, in visual imagery, also at, at, uh, across uh, orders of magnitude of scale, mm -hmm. where there is beauty, I mean a staggering beauty, 
for example, in the replication process seen literally by animation, but literally that happens, mm -hmm. transcription and replication, at the molecular level, all the way up to the evolution of an ecosystem. These are things that have never been caught, really, that I've seen, you know, in an authoritative way. We don't have schools of art that I'm aware of, but maybe I could be informed otherwise, that mm -hmm. somehow has dipped into that deep reservoir of, of information or uh, the uh, sense of wonder that the scientist feels in uh, being the 21st century counterpart of the 16th century explorers, you know, landing on mm -hmm. the shore of a new continent. Uh, that they are the same people, the same mm -hmm. feelings. Somehow that's not been captured. So um, that's where, in my opinion, visual arts and, and the other creative arts should be thinking of going because I see a lot of um, opportunity being lost by that failure to connect. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sh an example is nature writing, if I can switch over to that. There is a, nature writing is a, uh, an American innovation. I guess mm -hmm. it began with Thoreau, mm -hmm. but it has been developed uh, to um, a pretty high degree in America. Yet, um, the nature writers are, they haven't got it yet. They really don't understand how to write about nature in a way that uh, reflects what is most wonderful about nature, because most of them are not scientists and they don't have adequate scientists. They have a long way to go before um, they even begin to uncover the possibilities for artistic expression, and it should somehow reflect the poetry in the mind of the scientists. Scientists are the first rank. Now let me add right away, and I'll just be arrogant about this, I mean, uh, uh, potentially offensive. The vast majority of scientists are journeymen. I mean, they are people who live nine to five lives. Maybe it's nine to you know seven in the evening, and then Sundays too. But um, who have uh, normal personal existence, other interests. Uh, they get very good on a string instrument. They they go fishing. They have families and so on. But basically, they do their science in terms of problem solving. A problem is presented, a sense of uh, somewhere, to something to be done that has not been done, or something to be explored that hasn't been explored. I'm sure they often have the sensations that I describe as central to the poetic mm -hmm. fountainhead of scientific discovery. But nonetheless, they devote their lives primarily to solving a problem or two of complexity, and they're very clever. But then when you look at their records, and when they try to write a book of any kind, what you see is a, an instruction manual, you know, an account, uh, maybe a little bit of poetry. Eric Kandel is an example of a guy who could bring it in. Jim Watson had that feeling, you know, he conveyed the right feeling when he was, but even mm -hmm. in, the, in the double here, but even there what he was doing was uh, explaining to us the thoughts and the process of the uh, young gun in the West who comes right. into town, you know, and beats the old guys to a draw. Uh, but that's valid. 
Uh, but they are basically people who haven't got it any more than the visual artists have got it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the but the scientists of the first rank get it, mm-hmm. and I that's somehow you got to find them and uh, and bring them and and uh, get them to talk or come into contact with or get an interest in the arts, mm-hmm. visual arts. Maybe I'm sure there are. You uh, but there's another side to all of this, uh, from the artists who are going to use science. Uh, I don't want all of them to be taking theorems and, and, and principles of evolutionary biology and molecular science and giving us a direct translation. Not all right. of them. Some can do it. Some mm-hmm. of the most skilled can do it and excite us. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the visualization of it and the, and the kind of where the context and how they do it, but many of the visual artists, of the, again of the first rank, and boy, that's a hard one to divine, isn't it? Who is of mm-hmm. the first rank? I want them to have totally a free hand, and if they want, if if the artist of the first rank uh, wants really to smear a canvas with primary colors with their elbow, or give us something resembling a blood splatter at a murder onto a, a, a canvas, and, and get something powerfully evocative, turn them loose and let them do it. And um, so we don't want to mess around with them too much. Science, uh, the science-art uh, interface is too primitive to start telling the creative artists themselves what they should be doing. We just want to say, look, uh, the best science are poets. Science and the subject of science is a domain of unlimited potential for the poets, for those who are going to be genuinely creative. But in addition, uh, art of um, of art criticism, you know, criticism of the creative arts, whether it's book reviewers, Critics of the visual arts, just telling mm-hmm. us a lot about the background and what this artist tried to do and the sensation they create. They can profit enormously in improving their analytic sense uh, by knowing science. So in consilience, I have a, a section there on uh, topics like recent research on the, what is the ideal environment, why we are so drawn to a parkland environment, what is the ideal uh, psychologist in studies that haven't been pressed enough, incidentally, uh, find to be the ideal level of complexity that creates the most arousal? Uh, there is plenty uh, evidence of what I've called epigenetic rules. And this is program propensities to learn certain things, to avoid learning other things, to respond powerfully to certain visual and other stimuli, either attracted to and forming bonds or uh, with people or with choosing a habitation, mm-hmm. or negative, like the now well-worked-out uh, phenomena of phobias to natural uh, enemies, mm-hmm. from snakes to spiders to high places and so on. Uh, these, this is the ensemble of, of epigenetic rules that um, are the are human nature? So we never define human nature. 
the uh, human human humanity scholars never defined it. Never defined it to this day, and we still see uh, crude references by editorial writers that I just saw yesterday in one paper saying people keep doing this. It's it's irrational. They keep uh, getting into wars and doing this and that and so on and. Maybe it's not just economic in origin. Maybe it has something to do with the human psyche. And all I could say was, amen, brother. I'm sorry you didn't take uh, science courses when you were in college. Because this is what our future critics should be doing, is understanding why so much of what we consider beautiful and so much of what we consider repulsive. Um, and so... Uh, what bonding we form with certain people, or sexual, or family, or tribal, uh, and uh, avoid forming, you know, with the enemy, with outlanders, and all of that may be programmed, that is, into propensities that are built in from the beginning. And psychologists have seriously talked and analyzed and studied to some degree prepared and counter-prepared learning. For example, in the visual arts. Uh, is um, the perception, and I've based this on one study done in 1970s that seemed reliable, and I have not seen it discussed at much length on gene culture coevolution, namely the finding, completely reasonable, that arousal in the brain, which is measured by damping of the alpha waves, that's the technique used then. I think we probably could do better today uh, with MRI, but uh, that the damping, and therefore the arousal, uh, is maximized at about a, um, a certain redundancy level, I won't use it, but a level of complexity. About what you get in a maze with 15 or 20 turns, an mm -hmm. asymmetrical spiral, two examples in which the arousal, is, it actually spikes about there, and it is less complex Arousal is really low, it's more, it gets low again, it spikes around there, according to this one study. But it's completely reasonable because um, of the indirect evidence that this is what guides people in design. It happens to be about the level of complexity of freeze design, you know, freezes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, of um, the uh, ideograms. Mm -hmm. of uh, Japanese and, idio and other um, ideogram-based languages. Uh, it's uh, about the same as the level of complexity in flags, mm. signal flags and national flags. It's about the level of complexity in what we call abstract art. They get up to about that level and they stop there. Why? Because they're so stupid that they can't get beyond? No! Yeah. The uh, Paleolithic artists uh, painting 30,000 years ago show that's not true. They get up there because that's where you get maximum arousal. Also, it's where you get up a characteristic uh, part of it is the, the magic seven number. That's the, uh, the number of objects that uh, you can count uh, mm -hmm. just by a glance. Uh, it, it's quite likely that um, this spike which is very, very important for the understanding of art, visual art, is the maximum as which, uh, or it's the optimum which you can process information. In other words, it's more complicated 
then the mind has to slow down and start calling in other resources. But for a quick response, uh, whether it's a spider on a web, you know, or whether it's a uh, the uncoiling of a serpent, mm -hmm. or whether it is a beautiful woman. So it would seem to me, and it's just finally is being caught on by uh, in sociobiology generally by a group. Of, this is in the in, in poetry and in general writing, and particularly literary criticism, by a group of uh, young scholars like mm -hmm. Joseph Carroll and um, Jonathan Gottschall, uh, who have now built their careers, are building their careers uh, on uh, what has been called crudely Darwinian literary criticism. Mm -hmm. So that's worth noting. You might okay. want to look up something by, uh, for example, uh, Jonathan Gottschall especially, his recent book, The Rape of Troy, in which he goes through the, the Trojan story, how mm -hmm. the motions are built, what kind of emotions they are, what they consider beauty, and so on. Um, I was curious too, following up, speculating a little bit when you were describing how artists have failed to capture um, the, the, some of the insights, the you know, the complexity of evolution, and you know, by definition, it's it's changing. It's not static. So if you try to capture it in an art in a piece of art that's static. Um, it's, it's inevitably difficult. So I wonder if in, in film and computer modeling or anything else, I mean, certainly yeah. in a lot of the nature programming we've seen, um, you know, that's part of the wonder is you not only get to see a flower, you get to see it on bloom, you get to see yeah, landscapes right. change over time and so on. And, with, and that's with actual film, with computer modeling, you can actually, you know, you can cover thousands of years in, in, a, in, a, in a time lapse. Um, I, but I, often it's 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 scientific rather than aesthetic. I mean, is you know, do you see a potential for merging those somehow? Oh yeah, is that is that where it's going to happen? That's exactly what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. That uh, if we can capture the realities, and and talking about I'm talking about at two levels. One is uh, what really is the substance of the world, uh, and the processes of the world. As science is now making them clearer and clearer, and to capture those. Uh, in art, uh, then uh, great artists would be able to uh, find imaging, imagery that uh, the um, that uh, that that really is timeless. Mm -hmm. I, th I think we all agree that um, the uh, the cave art, the best of cave art, is timeless. Of course, we're very impressed that it's 20,000 years old or 35, mm -hmm. uh, 30 years, 30,000 and so on. And that makes us want to show it all over the place, but it, it has timeless quality to it mm -hmm. uh, in, and in the depiction of the form of these now extinct animals. Um, I, but how the, I'm, now I'm way out of my field, but I would think <laughs> there are so many ways of expressing dynamism, that sensation. Uh, in, in art, just the right of degree of complexity, incidentally. But Duchamp brings us, he, he created motion in our heads. We should be able to do that sort of thing in all sorts of process, biological process, at the level that humans understand, you know, that, that magnitude of perception, of size that we, we understand, mm -hmm. and then process um, expressed in a static, painting, uh, in sculpture, what could you do better than the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima, you know, for motion. Mm -hmm. And I think 
critics of the visual arts should be able to explain these things scientifically. They don't have to have very deep science, but that's one one connection between science and the arts. That, uh, I had a question that just occurred to me about visualization and how it is used yeah. in science. And in evolutionary biology, I mean, we, we see all these forks in the road and things turn. Um, how often has visualization been used to consider what might have happened and, and also where we might be going? But, yeah. you know, certainly um, when you look at, you know, like the Burgess Shale and you see all of these organisms that might have developed but, but didn't, yeah. um, has anybody made the effort to, to use computer visualization or other types of tools to, um, to hypothesize about where, where this path would have gone if it hadn't been cut off. Well, Is it's not all the time. That's the foundation of theoretical biology. I'm engaged in an exercise with a couple of mathematicians right now. But, but have you also involved artists in that? It would seem to me that part right. of it is mathematical, but yeah, not, wouldn't it have made sense? Not to yet. Do, uh, mm -hmm. Usually it has to do with um, a very high level of abstraction. That's where a lot of mm -hmm. you know biological theory, mathematical biology, the theory is, goes wrong and it's just a waste of time. Mm. Uh, but it's highly, it has to be highly abstract in order to de exact. And it often, uh, what we do is mostly microevolution, you know, mm. a, a, a simple step yeah. or two. Mm -hmm. uh, further, a macroevolutionary counterfactual history is what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, what might have been and so on. Yeah. Has anybody done that? I mean, have scientists done that? I mean, yeah, I mean, and well, and it's uh, visually interesting um, when sure. they do it too. I mean, certainly we also we have an art that just creates monsters, sort of imaginary beings that yeah. are in, that is in some way a type of speculative evolution. They do it all the time, and mm -hmm. it's done badly. And several uh, who have uh, projected what evolution might be like, you know, if humans didn't interfere, mm -hmm. and it's it's, it's it stinks. <laughs> I, I, I think it was done by scientists, but you know why it's poor is we know so little about the existing world. Uh, uh, we know so little about ecosystems, how ecosystems are put in, and under what circumstances uh, major innovations in evolution, the so-called um, major transitions in evolution occur. And I have on one occasion used this uh, counterfactual uh, imagination to uh, to illustrate that point of what didn't happen. So in my book, uh, Promethean Fire, which is mm -hmm. a book I published in the early 80s on the human, inve the invention of humans, you know, where mm -hmm. we came from or what mm -hmm. is peculiar about us. I took up this question then of why it's so rare. And I pointed out that <clears throat> throughout the age of reptiles, that there were countless forms of uh, dinosaurs that were bipedal, a lot of the ornithischian dinosaurs were bipedal, they were around mm. with little hands that were doing things and so on, and they had the potential for growing a bigger brain, mm -hmm. um, but they never produced anything like uh, humans. Uh, they produced some pretty smart dinosaurs. Uh, I think it's probably true, uh, as uh, Spielberg was right about uh, having um, in his Jurassic Park, you know, some pretty smart velociraptors. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, what I did then was to show what a, um, a humanoid dinosaur would look like in a natural surrounding. I had an artist do that. That's in Promethean Fire. Mm -hmm. And I got that image of the um, 
dinosauroid, as it's called, from a Canadian paleontologist who first thought of trying to draw something of how it might look. So I took it, if there's a sculpture of that in some one of the Canadian museums, so I took that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's been done, but you know, beyond that sort of thing, you're, uh, to show what happened, did not happen. Yeah. To ask the question why it did not happen. Well, beyond that, uh, no, I don't think we can go uh, very far into the future. Right now, I think we're on the cusp of bringing science and humanities together. Mm -hmm. And that, it, to me, is one of the most exciting prospects in intellectual history. So, uh, how does that manifest itself? In what uh, ways? Well, it would be by um, uh, recognizing that uh, between the great branches of learning, and, and let's just recognize two, that would be the natural sciences and the humanities. Uh, it's always been thought kind of an unbridgeable gulf. It's a fault line, you know, that you never, will mm -hmm. never cross it too, as, and, uh, that uh, one, that they will just have to go on developing independently. I think we're discovering that that's not, it's not an epistemological barrier. It is a broad, mostly unexplored area for scholarship and artistic mm -hmm. endeavor, that when the two start exchanging, the two great branches of learning start exchanging um, information and collaborating more creatively, uh, then that will start filling in. It'll fill in as science as well as uh, the creative art. Because there are, sub and there are subjects now that are beginning to do that, to fill in this, to start exploring cooperatively uh, the domain, the part of this domain between the two. There's like biological anthropology is often mm -hmm. running, cognitive psychology is often running, and so on. But we don't have very many um, humanities scholars. Mm -hmm. But it, re it, re it, uh, it brought into focus something that I think is still with us substantially, and that is a belief that the two great branches of learning are maybe they can shout back and forth or, you know, occasionally inspire one another back and forth, but they will never be brought together. And I think that's a huge mistake, and I think we're on the cusp of changing that.